For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. We're back to the Total Celebrity Show on the Toll Education Network. Again, tolltutor.net for more information. Twitter, tolltutor, Neil S. Haley, Facebook. LinkedIn, Neil Haley, Instagram, tolltutor, Pinterest, Neil Haley, and Google Plus, Neil Haley. And it just uh, let the uh, interesting interviews roll on and on. And uh, I just, it's such an unbelievable thing. I get to talk to so many amazing people. Bob Newton, superstar with Nebraska. Bob, thanks for calling and how are you? Very well, Neil. How are you? Uh, doing fantastic, uh, for sure. And uh, where did, did you always want to play football growing up, Bob? Uh, when I was growing up in, in Southern California, I was I was rather large as a as a youngster, so I always I could I couldn't meet the the weight classification. So uh, I wasn't you know they they wouldn't let you play if you were over a certain weight and age. So but I would always go to the youth football games and watch them on Saturday, and then I I finally started playing organized football as a sophomore in high school. Uh, interesting. And so because you're a big guy, it was a perfect fit for you. And once you got on that field, uh, did did you know you were you could play in the pros someday? It was just did it come easy to you? No, not at all. I didn't it didn't come easy to me at all. I was I was very uncoordinated as a sophomore in, in high school and I uh, uh I was very gangly and I was about I don't know, five ten, maybe two hundred at that time, which was a good size for a sophomore, but you know, fairly gangly, and, and I was growing pretty fast, and so, and you know, they had to teach me how to get in the stance. Uh, but each year in high school, I got better, and my, by my junior year, I was voted most improved player. By my senior year, I was most valuable lineman. But still, colleges basically uh, there was no interest for four-year school, so I went to a junior college for two years, and then I, I rapidly developed. Uh, technique and skills and size, and then got offered a lot of scholarships and ended up going to the University of Nebraska. All right, so you go to the University of Nebraska, and at that time in the seventies, was it a powerhouse like the years in the in the eighties and nineties with Nebraska? No, actually, uh, when I went there, they were coming. Uh, uh, my first season there was nineteen sixty nine, and they and they were coming off two six and four seasons and. They were thinking about firing Coach Bob Devaney, and there was a lot of, uh, you know, negativity uh, towards the the football program. And uh, but in 1969, we went nine and two. We beat Georgia in the Sun Bowl, 45 to six. And then in 1970, we went undefeated and were uh, declared national champions. And then the '71 team, the 1971 team was was also undefeated and were national champions. And Many many uh, outlets have voted them the team of the century in the 1971 Nebraska team. So we got it turned around. Was it the same coach that got it turned around? Yes, it was. It was Coach Devaney. Coach Devaney coached through 1973, and then he turned over the uh, the head coaching responsibilities to Coach Tom Osborne, who actually uh, recruited me out of California. He oh, was, wow. Uh, the main person that contacted me to recruit. That's a legendary coach for sure, Tom Osborne, and your coach before as well. But I mean, yeah. amazing what that really brought the Nebraska program. You were the beginning of it, right? Of the uh, of the legacy of what Nebraska football is. It sounds like you, what you guys. Well, I feel very fortunate, and very grateful to be part of that historic uh, turnaround and the um, you know the progress that we made. They also also implemented a strength power conditioning program in the in the spring of 1969 which I was one of the first players and the the man responsible for that was Boy Epley who's kind of the father, the godfather of strength training for college coaches and got to know him and he and I continued to remain friends but uh yeah there's the state of Nebraska really you know, really supports the program. And so it was a great time for the fans of Nebraska, too. And the, just that became the, the team, right? Lincoln and, and the, the Cornhuskers. Everyone lived and died Cornhuskers after those two seasons, didn't they, for sure? 
Yep, it was it was a great experience, and then I went from there to the Bears in '71. Uh, and you played for a bunch of different teams as an All Pro for sure. What was your greatest experience in the NFL? What which team would you say I, yeah, I hang now. my hat on and say that's my team? Well, you know, I, I was with the Bears for five years, and then the Seattle Seahawks for six years, and I had great experiences uh, on both teams. Uh, I think helping. The being on the Seattle Seahawks expansion team of 1976 with Steve Largent and Jim Zorn and some guys, I, that 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 brings a lot of gratitude because that was their first year and we were you know we were responsible to get the franchise off the ground and I ended up playing with them as I said six years and uh, you know we turned it into a winning franchise by uh, 1978. We were nine and seven after only uh, being in the league three years, and then 1979 we were nine and seven. We would have made the playoffs in today's uh, the way to, the way they they have teams eligible to make playoffs today. But back then nine and seven they get you in there. But but then I had a great time in Chicago playing with guys like Dick Buckus and Gail Sayers and uh, and. Uh, uh, Walter Payton, so and just being around George Hallis wow. and that organization was a you know a phenomenal experience too. We we weren't winning there too much at that time, but it was still a great experience. Well, Bob, you have a book for both hands of all those players you played with. To write, have you not written a book yet? I don't know why you haven't, <laughs> because of the of those, of those teams playing with the Bears, with those amazing legendary players, and then also playing with the Seahawks and the beginning of the phases of uh, a tremendous franchise, and with some of the players you played with, some great stories to tell for sure. Yeah, I've I've talked to some people about the possibility of doing that, Neil, writing a book, and so it's definitely and and. In, in the thinking stage, for sure. You need to contact Triumph Books. That's who you need to contact out of Chicago. Best sports writing book. I, I have Triumph book authors on all the time, and I guarantee no that. And what was the name again? Triumph. Triumph Books. Oh, Triumph. Yeah, yeah. okay. They're ph- phenomenal out of Chicago, and uh, oh my gosh, I have all their great players on all the time, and, and I mean, not players, and players and authors, but I mean, tremendous, and they're always looking for celebrity authors for their yeah. writing, so definitely, I think you should think about that. Put that on your bucket list for sure, Bob. All right, so... Because uh, <laughs> uh, I, I tell you, I'd be interested in just learning about the Bears. For uh, Could you imagine some of those stories and, and, and playing with those legendary players? And then the Seahawks, that would sell a lot too because what? How about those Seahawks? I, I, yeah, when I look at them now, I mean, they—I was at the Super Bowl game, and uh, uh, they could be two-time world champion back to back. Don't don't talk about that, Bob. Oh man, you know why I'm up there? as a Steeler fan? Do you think I wanted the Patriots to win? No, no, they're the evil ones. (laughs) That's right. right. So, so I was like, you know, and and I'm not going to say I'm a huge Seahawk fan because I'm a Denver Bronco fan. I'm a Bronco and Steeler fan, so it's very hard to. But I I wanted the Seahawks to win, and I couldn't believe that happened. And so, you were at the Super Bowl, and you're probably you're you're probably like, okay, they're going to be two times Super Bowl champions. Oh yeah, I thought it was over. Yeah, the Seahawks. We had a. the semi uh, alumni get together there, and a lot of former players showed up, and uh, so it was great seeing t- old teammates and and supporting the Hawks. Well, so you you bleed both teams? Would you say Chicago Bears too? Or are you back in touch with them a lot and stuff? The, the well, organization. I, 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 it's been a while. I went back to the uh, 2003 when they uh, opened up the new Soldiers Field, and there was a bunch of us that went back to there. But then I haven't been back there since. But I am going there in June, and I'm, I've got uh, I've already made arrangements to go see uh, Hallis Hall, which is in Lake Forest, Illinois, where the team trains. And I got a good friend there still with the organization, Clyde Emmerich, who was the strength coach there for since 1975, one of the strength coaches. So he's going to meet me out there so I get I get a tour of the facility and say hi to some folks. So I, I'm going to get more involved with the alumni there back in Chicago. All right. Two great organizations to say you're with. And unbelievable how probably when you opened up that franchise, you never knew that that franchise was going to grow like this. The, oh, the Seahawks. No, we, no, no, no. It was. I we had really good ownership. The Nordstrom family was the owners, and uh, they they were very impressive, and everything was first class. So we knew that, you know, they were serious about having a 
successful organization. And the people of Seattle, as you can see now with the talk, man, were just, they were, they were like that even when we first started almost. They were so happy to have a team in the Northwest. Here's a question. All right, Bob. So uh, I understand you uh, had an honor with the Seahawks. Tell us specifically about that honor with the Seahawks. Yeah, well, the, it was in 1980. I was uh, I was chosen as the Seahawks lineman of the year, which was the first year that they started that award in Seattle. And I was I was very proud of that because I was coming off a very severe career-threatening uh, knee injury. I sliced my uh, anterior cruciate to pieces uh, in night, towards the end of the 1979 season. So. There was some doubt that I would even play, so I felt very good about coming back in 1980. Put a lot of hard work in the rehabilitation in the off season, and and I was honored with that award. And I think they still give it up there in Seattle. But but I was, you know, I, I had some football cards produced in the early 70s. The Bears thought I would be an All-Pro uh, uh, offensive guard once I got a little bit more experience and. Uh, I, 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 one of the things I think that prevented me from that was my substance use problem that I developed. Uh, actually, I, it it's probably started in late high school, progressed through college, and then really materialized when I became a pro. And it just kept me from uh, uh, off-season. Each year it got a little bit harder for me in the off-season to get conditioning and, and so forth. And, and soon after my 11-year NFL career, I entered a, uh, uh, an alcohol drug treatment center and in the state of Washington, and uh, and it that was in July of 1983. And thankfully, I've I've been sober since then, and uh, have worked mostly for the last 29 years. I've worked in the field of of chemical dependency. And I've been with the Betty Ford Center here in Rancho Mirage for the last 15 years. So. That's great. It turned, into, it turned into life's work for me. So going through that hard time, Bob, and then making the choice to get better, and then after recovering from the alcohol abuse, you decided, I am going to pay it forward and help others through these trying times. That's great. Okay. Yeah, it just became a passion, and I just felt there was a lot of ignorance in our society about um chemical dependency and the disease of addictions. And so I, you know, I've done a ton of public speaking, um, and, uh, and so forth. And I'm doing that now for the, for the Hazel and Betty Ford foundation and, uh, and, and these types of interviews and, and so forth. So just help with the educational process in our society that there's, you know, that there's, uh, that I, from what I've learned and from my recovery, I feel I, I owe a, uh, I owe that responsibility. Are you concerned about young people today, especially with now uh, the legalization of marijuana and it's being in how high school kids are thinking it's an okay drug to go ahead and utilize and and it's a gateway drug in so many aspects to really having more and more people addicted to drugs and alcohol because of just specifically just how the mainstream media takes it and all of the people and how it's really just a joke and it's okay? For kids and how yeah, that's a good point. No, I, I I agree with you 100%. I think it's a very dangerous uh, concept. These states legalizing them because young kids will will uh, you know they see that as a as a mixed message and, and and the mixed messages we send young people about alcohol too. They you know a lot of times young kids start drinking around 13 or 14 and they see so many positive messages on TV and in sports outlets that you know. This is uh, this is what you need is to drink, and so you know I think there's a lot of room for us to to grow in a society, and our responsibility to send a, a, a clearer message to young people. Oh, definitely send that clear message to young people, and think about this. The problem is that you legalize in a couple states, then you have places like Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where the kids are saying, "Hey, it's legal in some other places. Why can't I do it?" So I'm going to be, I, it shouldn't be illegal. And the police are starting to ignore it more. And so that leads to it. Then it leads to hard, harder drugs. And the kids that can't control themselves, Bob, or the ones that, you know, are going through some hard times and, and they really get addicted to this drug or alcohol, they decide I'm going to try something even more that's going to make me feel even better because of their hard times, because of maybe uh, hereditary addiction 
from their family members and things like that. And it's just so difficult mm-hmm. and it must frustrate you or, and really say, we got to go through this process, especially when they get to this addiction phase. Right. Yeah, well, it does. It does. And, and you're exactly right. I, you know, all, you know, I've worked as a counselor for many years too. And, and every assessment that I did on a, on a heroin addict, they, they didn't start right on heroin. No, it was a no. progressive, you know, it was a progressive process and it usually started with alcohol and pot. And then, it, you know, those drugs quit doing the, having the effect that they wanted. And so they just it escalated and escalated and they built up tolerance. The next thing, you know, they're, they're, you know, a lot of the pain medications now get so expensive that young know, people go to heroin because it's cheaper. And right. uh, so it's, it's definitely a, an element in our society that we've got to continue to address. So you work with all types of abuse, of substance abuse then at the clinic? At, at the yeah, yeah, we, we treat... Uh, you know, the disease of alcoholism, I, I, I like using the term chemical dependency. Anybody that has a dependency on any chemical, it could be, you know, speed, amphetamines, cocaine, uh, pot. Most people that are coming in now, there's usually poly addiction where there's usually two or three chemicals that they're using pretty regularly instead of just one. Now, some of the older adults that come in, sometimes it's, it's exclusively alcohol, but you know, the middle age on down, a lot of them are coming in with, with multiple uh, addictions. Um, and, uh, they, you know, a lot of times they may go to a psychiatrist or to a doctor that doesn't and understand the disease of addiction, and they get prescribed uh, uh, some, some medication that, that becomes, you know, physically dependent, and they get physically dependent on it. Right. Uh, and then... And they already and they weren't honest with the psychiatrist about their alcohol use, so they get the double whammo. They have an alcohol problem now. They're on a on a drug that's addicted to them. Some kind of could be some kind of uh, antidepressants like Xanax or so forth. So then they come into treatment and they're they're pretty sick people, and uh, they need they need medical detox and they need to be looked after medically to make sure that they can. you know, be detoxed safely. Right. Well, Bob, you're doing some tremendous work and you really uh, piggybacked off your great NFL career and uh, college career to help others for sure. Do you have a place to find information on you, Bob, or anything? Or is it more, yeah, or is it more just uh, where you work? Yeah, because yeah. I, you know, I uh, I had, you know, my, my Nebraska career, I was a consensus All-American there as a offensive tackle. And, uh, and so that was uh, that. That's the most accolades I got at, when we were speaking about football, and I was I was very proud of that. Uh, and I, the Nebraska, uh, been chosen in the Nebraska Hall of Fame football, and is one of the top fifty players in the history of Nebraska football. That's great. Uh, but I could, you know, I could send you a little a bio if you'd like for me to. Neil. Oh, definitely, uh, definitely. And is there a website for the Betty Ford uh, Foundation in in California where you're at? The one. Absolutely, it's uh, the Hazel and Betty Ford dot uh, com or dot org, I think. And and we'll get uh, we'll get the the site will come up uh, if they just if they just type in Hazel and Betty Ford Foundation, it'll come up. Uh, and then it has all of our services there and uh, here at Rancho Mirage and throughout the, the facilities, uh, throughout the other states where we have facilities. The, uh, it's a very, the, the Hazelman Foundation uh, has a very expansive uh, network of facilities throughout the, throughout the United States and Florida, here at Rancho Mirage, uh, New York, Minnesota. Awesome. So, Great. Yeah, Oregon. Yeah. Well, definitely. Let's stay in touch. Let's figure out a way we can connect maybe on Facebook and stuff and reach out. And then uh, I definitely hope you write a book. Uh, you have some great stories to tell for sure. So when you have that book written, you'll definitely come back on the show uh, for sure. Okay, You're always Neil. welcome anytime. And, yeah. And I am on Facebook. So just under Bob Newton. Uh, and you're under uh, Neil Haley, right? Yes, Neil S. Haley, because I try to differentiate myself. But you'll find me easily. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. I'll, I'll send you a friend request. All right. Sounds good, Bob. Good talk to you and best of luck. Thank you, Neil. All right. Take care. Bye bye.
You're listening to Total Celebrity Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Weekends are for the warriors of home projects. 84 Lumber has 14 Pittsburgh locations that are open on Saturdays to keep you on track and get you the supplies you need. Each member of 84 Lumber's expert team is experienced in building materials of all kinds, and they are ready to answer your home improvement questions to get the job done right. If you're looking for the hometown personalized service of a family-owned company, 84 Lumber is your go-to supplier. Visit 84lumber.com to find your nearest store and get started on your project today. Join us on Thursday night, November 16th, as the Penguins take on the Devils at BBG Paints Arena. Malkin skates the stick, angle down low, chance in front, Crosby, he scores! Sidney Crosby falling down, buries it! The first 10,000 fans in attendance will receive a Penguins Trapper hat, thanks to UPMC Hillman Cancer Center, in honor of Hockey Fights Cancer Night. Order your tickets now at PittsburghPenguins.com. Penguin season presented by UPMC. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Special Simulcast, the Neil Haley Show and the Love Is Podcast. I'm excited to host the Love Is Podcast, Kim Sorrell. Kim, how are you? What's going on? I'm doing great, Neil. I hope you are, too. And I am so excited to introduce our guest, my new friend. I love him, T. Martin Bennett. He wrote an incredible book after hours and hours and hours. I can't even imagine how many hours of research. And it is called Wounded Tiger. And it is so good. And it's going to be a movie. And uh, Martin, thank you. Thank you for being with us today. Well, great having you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, I am curious. So tell us a little bit about the book so that people understand. But I'm curious how uh, how it affected you overall, too. Well, Wounded Tiger is a story of hope, ultimately. And, and it's a story of hope and hopeless situations, so, I mean, all of us have been in that place at some point or another, but not as bad as what happened with, you know, the guy who led the attack in Pearl Harbor. I mean, he could have died on many occasions, as you would expect. Uh, it involves a guy named Jake DeShazer, an American who ends up bombing Japan, becomes a prisoner of war, tortured, solitary confinement, people getting shot, people dying of exposure. His situation was hopeless. They expected all the prisoners of war to be just executed because they would tell on the Japanese the Covell family fled from the uh, from Japan into the Philippine Islands, and then they sent their kids to the U.S., and then they expected to be safe in the Philippines because MacArthur was there, 100,000 troops were there, but the Japanese came in, they flooded the island, and of course, you know, uh, MacArthur fled, it was, a, it was a, a total defeat, and so their lives were in danger, they fled for their lives, and they were being pursued by the Japanese, so everybody in this story was in dire straits and circumstances at one point or another, but and you think there's no way this can work out for good it's just not possible but yet it does so my takeaway is there is no situation so bad that god doesn't have a secret way to make it work out for something amazingly positive that is amazing it's such an amazing story every bit of everybody's story because it's not just one person it's you you um look at all three of the people that you mentioned and how their lives intertwine and how they cross. And, you know, we don't hear a lot about the Japanese end of things with World War II. Most of the books and things out there are all about Hitler and what's going on in Germany. Why do you think that is? Well, there's a number of reasons. One is that Japanese culture is very distant from American culture. We're considered a Western culture. Germany is a Western culture, European uh, Japan is in the far, far east. That's one. Two, the Germans considered, they believed they were going to conquer the world, so they documented everything. So there's tons and tons of footage. The Japanese did not do that, so there's very little film footage. So any documentary you get is going to have the same old, you know, scant footage. They just, there's not much about that. But I think it's had to do with the, with the otherness of Japanese culture. We talk about the six million Jews uh, in concentration camps, but you hear very little mention of the 10 to 20 million Chinese civilians who were just executed point blank. It wasn't for war. It was just execution. Quite horrific and not really uh, mentioned much in the history books. But, uh, but a question I had when I was in high school, I, I wondered why did the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor? Were they trying to take over the United States? That didn't make any sense. Why are they out in Hawaii anyway? What's the, I didn't get it at all. And that really drove me on some of my research. And the more I learned, the more I figured out, okay, I get it. 
So a funny thing that a side effect that's happened with the book is when people are reading it from the Japanese perspective, being attacked by the Americans, I've had numerous people say they were kind of conflicted of they wanted Fujita, you know, to make it through this part of the war. And the Japanese, they were kind of like they didn't know who to root for, you know. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, because you get to know everybody so personally. Yeah, once such you a know them, people, we, we we care about once we care about people, we want to see them succeed. But of course, we don't want to see someone succeed in doing something bad. I remember one time there was a I lived in Tucson, Arizona, and a rabbit shot across the street, and then a bobcat shot across the street. And suddenly I wasn't sure if I was rooting for the rabbit to get away or the bobcat to catch the rabbit. <laughs> I was confused. <laughs> Yeah, I think I would have been rooting for the rabbit because I like to root for the underdog. But, you know, I, I can see where there'd be a confliction yeah. with that for sure. So this book has been out, but this is a new edition. It's coming out on November 7th. What What is the difference between this and what's been out yeah. there? Great question. So I began the research 15 or actually 18 years ago on this story. When I novelized the first time, I did, I just take the screenplay and novelized a book form. But when I came toward the second edition, again, this is back in 2013, I started gathering all kinds of new information, including photographs, and I started putting photos in. So between 2016 and this edition, uh, Fuchita's old, his Fuchita's son named uh, Yoshia died, and he had an entire catalog of thousands of documents and photos and everything that was bequeathed to Stanford University. And so I went out to Stanford and I spent a couple of days there and, and I went online as well, going through every single photo, every single document and finding things that are like, wow, I didn't even know these things existed. At the same time, there are hundreds and hundreds of changes and additions to this new book besides the new book cover. So one of the things we have I don't think anybody on the planet has. And that is when Puchita was coming into Pearl Harbor, the code word back to the fleet carriers that they had achieved surprise was tiger, 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 or Torah, Torah, Torah. We all know those words, but we don't know what they mean. <clears throat> well, I've been working on this for years. I've never heard anybody mention that this telegraph, the physical piece of paper still existed. So one of my researchers found it in a museum in Japan and we contacted them to get permission to use it. And they were very hesitant. They said they want to make sure this was not an anti-Japanese book. So what we did is we sent them reviews from Japanese nationals, including the associate producer of The Last Samurai, a woman named Yoko Narahashi, quite well known and quite respected. And she loved the book front to back. So we sent those reviews to the museum. They said, great. They gave us a high resolution image. It's in the book. I don't think anyone has ever printed that before. And to see it in person while reading the book and seeing this stuff take place is like, wow, you feel like you're just there while it's happening and you're touching history. Wow, that you know is what, so what cool. I, I was going to say something, Kim. You know, when you listen to this specifically history and how history brings up different things, to see that perspective, as you talked about with the Japanese and kind of looking at it from the other side, of ending a war that needed to be ended, but the, the the pain, the suffering everyone went through, I think it really gives you a good understanding and perspective of what war brings in this yeah, book. You see, you see two things in, in Wounded Tiger, the power of hatred and how it destroys individuals and nations, and the power of love and how that transforms people. And where does that love come from? That was Fuchita's question, literally, that he wrote down. Where does this love come from is a great question because it leads to a really great answer. You know, as you mentioned, uh, what was found in the museum and they finally let you use it, that is one of 300 or so, right? Uh, photos in the book. Yeah. So yeah. it's like that times 300. Like, Correct. Uh, because so little has been around, that must have taken forever to it gather. I, my, one of my sons said, Dad, you got to put pictures in this. I said, Tyler, you don't realize how hard it is to find these things. But he said, you got to do it. And he was absolutely right. So we went through, we found them. I went to universities. I went to archives. I went to museums. I sent emails phone calls and everything to get these things. And some of these things took a long time just to get permission to get these things. And uh, we finally got it all done. And the net result is people say they just feel like they're there while these things are happening. Yeah, that's so cool. So getting permission, did you have any obstacles? Like were there some things that you wanted that you didn't get permission to have? 
No, we we got everything we wanted. Uh, we had to pay for some of these things because they were copyrighted photos, but that was very few. Most of the stuff was just finding it in the first place. But when you come across these pictures, it's just like I said, you know, it's like finding gold of wow. Uh, there's pictures I found that I did not even conceive that we would have a picture of such a thing. I can't say what these things are because they're kind of giveaways, but you'll see when you go through the book of like, that's amazing. Is that the place? Yes, that is the actual place. Wow, that's so cool. All right, so you've got this book and this and these incredible stories, and it's written much more like a novel than a history book, right? Yeah, yeah. because what happened was after I wrote the screenplay, screenplays were written in the present tense. You know, John walks across the door, John opens the door, present tense. But fiction, nonfiction is written, you know, he did this, they did that, they went there. It's kind of like yawn. It's all, you're looking at it from a distance. But fiction is all happening now, you know, the flames burst through the door, they screamed out, don't do that. And you feel very engaged. So what I decided to do was to use the format of fiction, but a nonfiction story. So they call it a nonfiction novel. This is what Truman Capote did in his book in cold blood decades ago, a nonfiction story. The difference is not between mine and his, but the difference is that it's not just uh, artistic license, making things up like Titanic and DiCaprio. That's a fictional story that takes place within the context of a true story. This is an all true story. And I really, I elaborated on the introduction of the new book because I wanted people to know how much went into the meticulous uh, research and verification and vetting of everything in this book to the point that I write, and I'll tell you now, the essence of every scene in this story is true and much is difficult to believe, even for myself. I had to go back three and four times to just make sure, did that really happen like that? And it did. And it's, and it's fun, it's encouraging, but it can also be life-changing. Wow, yeah, no kidding. And I'd like to talk about that part of it. So great stories, uh, great true stories. It's a great book. It's so fun to read. You, you know people that have sat down and read it in one sitting, even though it's a lot of pages, because it's so engaging. But it's also life-changing. There's also life uh, transformation that can happen while you read this book. Yeah, my yeah, my heart for the story is is <clears throat> I hope that people who read the book or see the film in the future would say I'm not as bad as those people are. They killed people. They you know did terrible things, tortured, and everything else. But somehow God came into their life and changed their life. If He can change their life, He can probably change my life too. What did they do and how did they do it? I want to know. And you see that in front of your eyes, it's not a teaching or a lesson. It's an example and a demonstration of how it all happens. Uh, yeah, so true. People. Gives hope to people. Yeah, which hope hope is something that we so who desperately want a better need. life? Who doesn't want to be happy? <laughs> no kidding. Who doesn't want hope for sure? And that's yes. what this is. Yeah. Well, so, and there's such, such richness in um, how... They even came to learn about Jesus or really figure out there is a God. Correct. So, I mean, you don't have to take my word for it. You can read the first chapters for free at WoundedTiger.com. You can read, I think, seven or eight chapters. And the book is not available yet. It's a, It will be available for a pre-order pretty soon at WoundedTiger.com. But it is a very positive story. I found it, it appeals to people, young, old, male, female, uh, people who are devout Christians, people who hate God and hate the Bible. One guy who read it was the head of an atheist club, and he loved the book and sponsored me on Kickstarter when I first started out. So you'd be surprised how many people find themselves engaged in this compelling story. That's amazing. It's amazing. Um, how did it change you personally? Like, what did this do for you personally? Well, <clears throat> you know, all of us have experienced things in our lives that are painful and we wish didn't take place. And in going through this story, I realized it's in that crucible of horrible conflicts that really the best things happen. That's where they happen. So I've learned to embrace things that are conflicts and difficulties because, you know, look at King David, his life, he's running for his life, living in caves, trying to figure out how to eat. But those were the best years of his life, writing the Psalms and all these accomplishments and all these beautiful things. When he's in the palace and everything's great, his life just goes downhill very rapidly. So it's like, you know, be careful what you wish for, because it's the it's that crucible of difficulties that really where the payday is and that 
Uh, you, that's where the Lord really comes and does great and wonderful things. So I'm not looking for a difficult life. I am not. But when I go through these difficulties, I now embrace them. And that I say is how one thing has changed in my life from the, from the story. Wow, that's so cool. You know, you mentioned love earlier. And I'm curious your take on on the love portion of it. Yeah, somebody asked me, is this, is there a love story in this in this book? And I said, well, there is, but it's not your traditional romantic love story. And he goes, well, then it's not a love story. However, I've had people write, and one of the reviews that I put in the front of the book from a reader is that it's the most powerful love story he's ever read because love is not really an emotion. It is a choice. And when people decide to do something to help others, that's a loving thing. A guy texted me today. He had a flat tire. And he said the guy in whose house he was in front of came out there, helped him, bought him a new tire. He said that was amazing. So love costs something. But the greater the offense, the greater the love. And so with Peggy Covell and Jake DeShazer, Fuchita, horrific things are being done. The amount of love it takes to overcome these things is gigantic. That's why... Fuchida was asking, where does this love come from? Because Peggy was loving and went out of her way to love her enemies in a situation that most people would think they would hate them forever. So that is this power of love is, is quite powerful. I had someone who read an advanced copy of the book, which you have right now. She said she was just surprised that she was just weeping tears over this story of how powerful and awesome it was. I've heard that many times. I had a grown man say, hey, Martin, this story is a really great story, but it kind of gets you. I said, what do you mean gets you? He goes, well, you know. And I thought, oh, yeah, the emotions. Yeah, he was not prepared for that emotional response to this story. Yeah, and well. And that's love. I would imagine everybody has an emotional response to this story. And yes, then that is love. That was such a great explanation. I like that. And uh, <sighs> what if you were to give some advice, you know, after after writing this, after knowing these people intimately, what, what advice would you give to other people when it comes to love or it comes to other people? Love is a choice. We can all make it. And if you take that one step, they say, give them an inch, you'll take a mile. But the Lord does that. If you give the Lord an inch of, I will love my enemies or whatever it, the difficulty is, he will bring in the mile of progress that you think is impossible. I've seen it happen in this book. I've seen it happen in my life. And I'd like to see it in everybody's life because we all face people who we need to be, who we need to forgive. And we all need forgiveness as well. So it's a two-way street and it does nothing but good, but there, it requires uh, an element of humility to say, I've screwed up. I've, I'm, I'm a jerk. I should not have done that. And the Lord is close to the humble. He's far from the proud. So if you're humble, you've got blue sky in front of you. Everything is possible. All right. Fantastic. Best place people can pick up the book is go where? Well, WoundedTiger.com, you can read the first chapters free and there's information to pre-order the book. It will be released on November 7th, but it'll be available to pre-order on the website. You can go to Amazon as well. You'll find it for pre-order in about a week or so. All right. That was a special simulcast of the Love Is Podcast and the Neil Haley Show, guys. Take care. Appreciate it, everybody. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Take care. All right. See you. Bye. We're back to the Neil Haley Show on Excited Welcome Program. My co-host, Paul Hollis, author of the Holloman series and CEO of Seniors Publishing and Holloman Publishing. How are you, Paul? And I know you're excited about our guest. We, we have a very special guest today, Mark Satterfield. He is a, a specialist in the art of marketing to the affluent. And, and we want to hear all about this. This is, this is going to be an intriguing story. Absolutely, Mark. So tell us your background and why you wrote this book. But I'm, I could, I probably could have you on sixty times because if I can find the affluent, my my life is going to be a lot easier. And it's not always the easiest thing. Oh, absolutely. First, thank you so much for having me, uh, having me on your show. Yeah, I mean, so many businesses get frustrated by dealing with clients who can't, you know, afford what they have to offer. And for the last 30 years, my focus and the focus of my agency has been on how do we go about developing relationships with, with the wealthy and the affluent. So that's, uh, that, that, that's what I focus on. I'm glad to have a chance to, uh, to talk with you about it today. What does your agency do? Tell me what, exactly what your agency does. 
basically we're in the marketing advice business. So I write books. My ninth book was the Affluent Marketing Blueprint. Uh, we have a paid group uh, group coaching program. I do some individual coaching with uh, with clients, uh, but uh, everything's available at uh, getwealthyclients.com. All right. So let's talk about specifically how do you market the affluent, especially if you are a service-based business? Because, you know, coaching, we could talk about that. Everyone's not focused, but a lot of times they don't go after the affluent, the coaches. They really go after the smaller. They don't look at the high, high ticket. When we talk about service-based uh, companies like, you know, digital marketing companies, you know, high-level real estate, all these different, they look for affluent. How do you go out and look for it? Absolutely. Because the affluent market is different than marketing to uh, to the masses. When I was doing the research for the book, it became very apparent that the affluent do business with one or more of three groups of people. People they know, people who are referred to them by people they know, and those that are recognized experts in their field. So your marketing strategy, your go-to uh, go to market uh, strategy is to really figure out, okay, how can I go about doing that? Now, for example, people they know. So what exactly does that mean? It does not necessarily mean that you're hanging out on the yacht sipping mimosas together. What it means is that you are familiar to them. And uh, in any community, whether it be a big city or a small city, there are places that the affluent gather. And it tends to be revolving around the uh, the arts. So it's your symphony, it's your uh, your opera, it's your theater group. It tends to be around uh, philanthropic things such as fundraisers for the Cancer Society, the Heart Society. And then there are enthusiast groups where people get together to discuss uh, exotic cars, wines, uh, collectibles of, of all sorts. Now, what you need to do is you need to develop a hit list of places that you're going to show up where the affluent in your community are. Now, look, wow. it is enormous pain in the tuchus the first few times because you're going to show up. You're not going to know anybody. And that isn't fun. So you're going to try to figure out any excuse for not showing up. But my advice to you is suck it up, put the big boy or big girl pants on and show up at those things. And the first time, are you going to get anything from it? No. The second time, probably not. But something magic happens around the third, fourth or fifth time is that now you become familiar. That you're kind of someone they've recognized. Maybe they don't know exactly what it is that you do, but you're now familiar and they now start to become comfortable with you. And then if you can engage them with the conversation around whatever the topic is of that particular meeting, whether it be opera or theater or exotic cars or whatever it is, then the door opens a little bit wider. And then you now start to become someone who yeah, I kind of know about Mark. Yeah. yeah, I'm not quite sure what he does, but he's somebody that, you know, maybe, you know, I, I'd be interested in getting to know. And that's how that process starts. But again, as I said, the first few times you do it, it is an enormous right. pain because nobody likes going to a meeting where they don't know anyone. And it's, it seems like it's a totally different animal than, you know, a lot of the marketing where we're all going to social media. The affluent spend some time on social media, but not a ton of time on social media. And you've got to be able to find them on LinkedIn at times, but you're not going, unless you have a right lead magnet or a right offer or building a relationship before, it's going to take a lot more time than going exactly to your community, especially if you're a service-based business and going or, and, and real estate to go to the people who have the money philanthropic, all these different places, different networking groups, but only the affluent and have those and build those relationships. And that takes work. It doesn't happen overnight. And you have to sometimes pay to play. Like for example, down the line goals for my business is, hey, I'm going to start to try to go to bigger events that are where the where they're located, especially in my industry. Or, you know, like let's give me an example. Uh oh, er, um Eric Sue, who's the co-host for the marketing podcast with, with Neil Patel, he has a program, but guess what? You, to, to be able to apply to go to his event, you have to have a revenue of a million dollars a year or more. So that he, those are the kind of people, but then you still got to pay a ticket, five grand, 10 grand. But if you get in front of the people, that's another way of doing it. 
It's getting in front of people that are much more wealthier than you are, right? You should surround yourself with those type of people, right? Right? Am I correct, sir? Mark? Absolutely. Yeah. And and you're you're exactly right. I mean, you know, you have to buy the tickets to the events. You have to buy the ticket to the show. It requires a certain amount of investment. But if you do it right, uh, if you start to develop those relationships, uh, you know, you're going to make that money back multifold. Now, the other one, and I know we're short on time, but the other one that you want to give serious thought about is becoming the recognized expert in your field, because that's the other group that the wealthy and the affluent will reach out to. They love to do business with experts. So you want to put together a marketing plan that really positions you as that expert. I've written nine books. For me, using books was an enormously powerful tool for separating myself from, from the masses. Yes, we're in a world where we listen to things, we watch things. We're not necessarily a society of readers anymore, but for reasons I don't fully understand, people who write books get outsized credit for being an expert. So if I was going to say to somebody, hey, what's your, you know, what should your goal be in terms of getting more affluent clients is write the book, write the book and have an opinion, you know, have a soapbox, have, have your belief about what you think people are doing right and what people are doing wrong. Be a little bit outrageous. Don't do, you know, crazy stuff. But right. be a little bit outrageous, have a different opinion, and that will get you the attention that you want, and it will get you the attention from the affluent and the wealthy. That's a great point. The, like, I'm the number eight celebrity podcaster in the world, according to Feedspot. I interview major celebrities. I, ha I have multiple businesses. That is where you become that that a brand, a brand expert, somebody that they know, like, and trust. Because the affluent are not going to go put their money in a fly-by-night that has a website that's never been updated, no social media followers, and no one saying this is the guy. They're going to be like, no way am I going to spend money with them. You are you are absolutely correct. I mean, the 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 strategy really is get them to buy into you. If we can get them to like you, trust you, know you, and then they will buy whatever product or service you have to offer. But yes, we want to position you as the brand. That is that is key. Where's the best place people can find information on you? Purchase your book and learn about you. Learn more and more about you. I think we're going to be working together in some sort of capacity. So I think you'll be a guest on my show again because your knowledge is exactly what the the doctors ordered, and it it ends this whole thing of getting people that just can't pay for what you're worth. That's why you have to learn from Mark. Best place. Well, best place is getwealthyclients.com. So if you go there, that's where we're offering some uh, free copies of, of the book. Uh, just help me out with the shipping and handling. And it's the place to, uh, to uh, connect with me. So uh, getwealthyclients.com. All right. You're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show. And we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Mike Bellardi Show. I'm excited to welcome the program Mike Bellardi. Mike, what's going on, man? How are you? Good How about yourself? Fantastic. So, Mike, who's our guest today? Mike Gogger. He's running for sheriff. We're trying to get him over the line. He's a great guy. Would great do a great job, and we want to help him out by giving him some airtime. So, tell us a little bit about why you should become sheriff, sir. Well, I, I've had decades full of experience. I have a history of uh, all kinds of awards. Uh, for my work as a law enforcement officer, both for uh, uh, arrests and clear cleaning up neighborhoods, for uh, innovative programs that I brought in to, uh, to helping neighborhoods recover and uh, uh, kids uh, uh, getting away from drugs. Uh, you, you name it, I've done it. So, and uh, I have decades full of uh, administrative experience as well. Wow, that's that's impressive. Uh, the, the, have you ever run for sheriff before, sir? No, I, I've always been for the last uh, for 16 years. I was the number two guy at an agency with an eight hundred million dollar budget and uh, forty four hundred employees. Wow. Tell us about that experience. How, how does that experience bring to you to be ready to be sheriff? Well, I, I think all my experience, not only in law enforcement, but 
my service to the community and all the different programs that I have chaired, uh, you know, from uh, chairman of the hospital board to chairman of uh, the uh, recovery programs to, to chair of the Southeast Florida Behavioral Health Network, the funding agency that provides money for all mental health and recovery services in a five county area. Uh, you name it, I've done it. So, so, that, so when you've been working, so you've been working in the private sector after you were in law enforcement years before, is that correct, sir? Or am I trying to? Yes, I, I retired for the second time in February of 2021. I opened up a consulting business uh, that's been quite successful, keeping me very busy. But at the same time, I was offered a position with one of the largest law firms in the southeastern United States, uh, Cersei Dennis, Carola Barnhart and Shipley. And uh, they came to me and asked me to join their firm uh, because of all the other things I was doing. I said I couldn't do it full time, but they offered me a part time position. And I, I work with Cersei Denny now part time as a senior paralegal slash investigator. Okay, interesting. Uh, when you think about your days in law enforcement, what makes you so prepared for this opportunity? Uh, I, I think my history. I, I mean, when you look at uh, and, and people that I have worked for, supervisors said I was way ahead of my time. I developed innovative programs that I had to fight to get in place. Uh, I brought community policing to Palm Beach County. Uh, I was uh, sent to a uh, training school uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, on community policing, ethics and integrity, partnershiping, uh, all the things that are necessary to, to rebuild neighborhoods and be a success. So I came back to South Florida, and not only did I implement it at the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office, but then I went to other police departments and trained them on how to be successful in community. Policing. All right. So basically, if I'm understanding this in, in so many ways, sir, um, that all these innovative things are needed. Why are you needed so much for Palm Beach County right now? And that's why you're coming out of retirement in a way to run. Well, uh, many of the programs that I initiated are now being or, or were displaced by the current sheriff, um, who does not have the same spirit of, of community that I have. Uh, I, I, I was, uh, I, I took the worst housing projects in the county, turned them around, uh, reducing crime by 85 to 90%. In fact, uh, we were so successful in all of these sites that the inspector general from HUD, Housing and Urban Development, came down here from Washington, D.C., toured the sites and came back a, a month or so later and gave us an award for uh, the innovative program, said he had never seen housing projects and uh, authorities as nice as what he saw in Palm Beach County. And that wasn't how it was when we started. No, that's that's so uh, important, sir, that uh, that you see these project these programs gone after they work so well you think it's politically they're pushed towards not doing those is it a democrat who is holding the, the, this position right now the sheriff yes it is yes it is and you know we work together we had known each other for like five decades but uh, he uh, worked at the city of west palm beach i started about the same time at the county uh you know we we did things together on occasion uh, operations together. Uh, he retired about the same time I did in 2004. And then uh, we both were on for sheriff. And, uh, you know, he came to me and said, look, let, let's do this together. But I have to be the sheriff because I was a chief. And I said, well, you were, you know, you were a chief of municipality, but I was the major of all investigative services for a very large agency. So, but, but we, we worked it out and I said, okay, because I wanted to keep community policing and all those other programs that I started together and in the neighborhoods because we had been so successful with it. Uh, 27 different sites throughout the county. And uh, he agreed. Yeah. So, and, you know, it started out great. But then over a series of uh, four years, eight years, 12 years, 
he started to dwindle them down and and, and take away some of the the the, uh, the ability the community policing officers to do as well as they they had been doing. So um, finally, uh, you know, it just got to the point where, you know, I, I couldn't agree with what he was doing. Exactly. And, and, and some of the accountability that, uh, the lack of accountability, I should say. And, and we had some, some heavy arguments over stuff like that. And I saw him migrate to a couple guys that, that never challenged him or, or never questioned his decisions. And, and I did that a lot. Uh, he closed down a program called the Drug Farm. It was an internationally recognized program, a tremendous success of taking inmates, putting them through a program and getting them straight and sober. I, I, I you know, I have a master's in social work and, and I believe, you know, I'll put you in jail in a New York second. And I did with thousands of people over 50 years. But I have to tell you, if I can keep get you straight and sober, that means you're not going to be in my jail and cost me at a minimum of $25,000 a year if you're healthy. Now, let's go between Democrat sheriff and a Republican sheriff. Again, I guess with the whole, you know, uh, some of the policing ideas of defund the police, all these different things, Palm Beach County needs somebody else stronger involved, right? What have you seen changes in Palm Beach County crime-wise under this sheriff that you can kind of fix things if you become sheriff? Well, some of those neighborhoods where we had community policing, they're not doing it the same way. Uh, currently, in fact, there was a newspaper article yesterday and the sheriff says, oh, I'm working in the community. I have deputies handing out food. Well, you know, handing out food in a grocery line is not community policing. You know, so, uh, somebody drives up in a car, you hand them a bag of groceries. That's not community policing. Community policing is, is getting guys into a neighborhood and getting guys and gals that are officers into a neighborhood, working with the people, empowering the people, educating them what they need to do to help themselves and um, and, and work as a team. It, it's, it's a partnership. And not only with the residents, but, you know, we, we did a huge apartment complexes. I, I, I formed a program for landlords because we found out that landlords who were doing Section 8 would 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 have a problem tenant well they would leave them and then go down the street and and go to another landlord so i started having landlords meet uh once a month uh, sometimes every other month and have a breakfast together and they would share information and that was tremendously successful i started programs working with county programs you know with with the different divisions in the county uh code enforcement building wow. uh, mm -hmm. planning they were building projects that were designed to fail. Uh, they, they were building these huge uh, low-income apartment complexes with a subsidized rent and then providing, they're, they're required to provide recreation. What they built was cheapest for them. They built one town. That doesn't work. You know, that's the most you can get. So, so you know, we, we started working with them and changing some of the plans that they had, uh, egress, ingress to those developments. Uh, but we had, in fact, a lot of the work that we did uh, was a, the county got awards for. And we were, wow. we were the impetus behind getting to do these things. We went in the neighborhoods. Uh, you, you know, we found out that they had no neighborhood parks. No. So yeah. I went in and advocated for the neighborhood park. You know, not not a regional park. We have beautiful regional parks, seven miles, ten miles apart. This one, these are little neighborhood parks in some of the most neediest of the neighborhoods, where kids can go and keep busy and and and, and have recreation. Well, they didn't want it. They thought it would be a terrible thing. I went before the commission. The guy who was the chair questioned me, and I was a lieutenant at the time. He said, Lieutenant Gauger, do you know how much it costs to maintain that park? And I said, you know what, sir? No, that's the only thing I didn't calculate. Oh, he wow. said, he said, I thought for a minute, he said, that'll be $12,500. And I thought, and I, I said, I said, Mr. Chairman, I think I can save some money for the county. And he kind of chuckled, he leaned forward and he said, well, how are you going to do that, Lieutenant? And I said, if you build me that park, 
I'll keep one of those kids from that neighborhood out of jail for the year. And that's $25,000. Wow. And you, the audience started clapping. <laughs> and and the, the arts director looked at one of the, at the chairman and, and it was like, Oh, whoops, whoops. And the, and the county commission voted for that first park. Okay. It turned yeah. part success that now we have 30 neighborhood parks. So Mike, what are your thoughts when you're hearing all this about sheriffs and how important a sheriff is to keep people, the community safe? Well, obviously they're very important. They're the key to keeping the community safe. And I think Mike has the experience. I think he has the programs. I think he knows what he's doing and he should be the next sheriff of Palm Beach County. And that's why he's on today's show. I, and that's and that's fantastic. Um, what do you think? What is your biggest challenges going into the election? Well, I think. Uh, well, I, I have a Republican opponent. He ran last time and didn't do that well. And you know, he he, he claims that he's a law and order guy, but when you look at his history, and you go to the clerk's office and pull up the arrests he made, no, you don't see it. He's- With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 